Each year as I begin to craft the platform for this day, I struggle to find a new approach. In the weeks leading up to this day, I talk with a whole lot of people. I eavesdrop on snippets of conversation about relationships. I read books on dating, on mother love, on baby love, on father love, on the chemistry of love. I look at endless dictionary definitions. I read poetry. I read about the powerful love we find in friendships, about love where people choose to live alone, about love in all of its beautiful variations. In America, when we talk about love in relation to Valentine's Day, people assume always that we are talking about romantic love. And if any of you have happened to have been in Borders lately, there are stacks of gooey, quick-sale books piled around the cash register, which gives us ample evidence of the American culture's view of love, which really offers us so many illustrations of what love surely is not. So, I am, once again, talking about love today. And in fact, I am returning to the theme of romantic love, because I cannot help talking about it. You see, barely a month ago, in a sparkling field of softly falling snow, in the mountains in the northernmost edge of New Hampshire, my daughter Ariana became engaged to be married. Next year, she will be marrying Chris Blaine, her fellow academic, her ballroom dance partner, her best friend, the one that she met three and a half years ago during the first week of college when they were partnered in a tango. The man with whom she will be sharing a life together. And so, I hope you'll forgive me if once again I talk about love, <laughs> romantic love. Now, in just a few weeks, Ariana will be home for her spring vacation, and I imagine at that time that we'll have a whole lot of fun sitting and looking through brides' magazines, talking about wedding plans, maybe even looking at wedding sites and other such things. And I also imagine that sometime during those weeks, we will talk about her love for Chris and his for her, and the commitment they will eventually be making. One of the sweetest parts of my job is performing weddings. Not so much the weddings themselves, but the interviews I have with couples beforehand, where the couples come and tell me all sorts of love stories, some saccharine sweet, some bittersweet, I am such a sucker for love stories. It is just a wonderful moment. And as someone who is an accomplice to the institution of marriage and lifelong partnership, someone who knows, just as surely as you all know, that more than 50% of marriages live, end up in divorce, I feel an obligation almost always to ask these couples, as gently as I can, a few questions. So, 
In thinking about that, I imagine sitting with Chris and Ari and Jean, sitting in our family room, sipping cups of tea, and just talking about again, hearing their story of their romantic proposal, and somehow stealth-like, I would fit in a few questions. <laughs> I would ask them about the lovely big yes that Ari gave to Chris's proposal. Oh, and by the way, Daddy and I are thrilled about you, Chris, about your family, about your love, about your plan, we would say, over top of those questions. I would try to uncover why they are choosing this now. I would ask them, when you look down the road, five, ten years from now, what do you imagine your life will be like together? What about 50 years from now? I would wonder out loud about that. How they feel about words like integrity or love, not only towards this other person with whom they're in love, but toward themselves, first and foremost and toward the world that surrounds them. I would ask them also, where will you be? Who will you be in the future? What community will you have that will hold you and support you in this relationship so that it will thrive? And what good does your little life together bring to the life of the world? And I would ask them those questions knowing that while there frequently isn't, though I know that this, in this incredibly thoughtful couple there is, a lot of clarity embedded in a couple's decision, it helps to say out loud their thoughts about the matter. I will ask them these questions not expecting an answer from them, making it clear to them that there are no right answers. The answers will live on in them and will be built day by day, together, over time. I will try to draw from my own understandings of love, though I will admit, after 24 years of marriage, I think I'm only just now getting the hang of it. I will try to resist thinking about this as premarital counseling, but just a lovely conversation we were having to pass the time on a spring day. <laughs> Sometimes when I do ask questions like that in premarital counseling, couples do want to give me their answers. And they're often beautiful, inspiring, and clear-headed. And with others, their answers are head in the clouds, troubling, half-baked, and flimsy. But out of whatever they say, however they answer, the three of us will try to fashion a wedding that might anticipate a marriage or a life partnership. Not only one that could last, but one that maybe should last. Out of their answers, we will try to make a ritual together that will point to a commitment not just between these two people, but between them and the wider world more durable and delicate than both of them together, some larger, something larger than themselves. 
Now, what I know about this couple, Ari and Chris, is that they are strong, clear-headed, autonomous individuals, wildly in love, but that they are solid people. I doubt that I will be hearing them say, as I so often do with young couples, that they are getting married so that their partner will complete them. That's a common thing that I hear, and I remember when Gene and I were in premarital counseling with Don. He made us, as he does with every couple, stand in front of each other and say to each other, "I can live without you." Now I thought that was a little quirky. <laughs> It certainly was a bit disconcerting, but I have always held on to that, and I always worry about it when I hear couples say those things, because even when I think. We think that we found that magic in someone who will help us feel whole. They can't, no matter how hard they try. They insist that while they were in it for the long haul, their partner, when they come in later and things go wrong, they insist that while they were in it for the long haul, their partner, without warning, changed from the holes in my head match the rocks in your head version. Into the surprisingly ordinary bad breath in the morning version, and I try to tell them that true love is what shows up when your partner is practicing the fine art of being completely unlovable. True love is loving them through through that, loving them in that. I will probably resist saying to Ari and Chris that love is young, for a perilously brief time. That heightened state, that glowy in love feeling, lasts, according to neurobiologists, no longer than about 18 months. It's why so many of us, when things get a little dull, stir up dramas in our relationships. I don't know if any of you have ever done this, so that we can end it. In the relationship, call it quits, and then reclaim those amazing feelings once again with that same person, and fall once again in love. We will have some of those same giddy feelings all the rest of our lives together, but not in the same way as it was at the beginning. I'm sure that many of you can recognize that heady stage. You love the way he is. With his family, the way he cries at movies. He loves the way you tilt your head when you're listening. The way you mess up the punchlines of jokes but laugh anyway. You love the way he listens to you. He loves the way you take him seriously. This is an enchanting time, possibly a little less so for those who are required to listen to all the miraculous details. <laughs> but this is. The honeymoon period of love, which masks the incy, wincy little imperfections that increasingly peek through, like he never picks up his socks, she never puts the cap on the toothpaste. He has this irritating way of loudly crunching his cereal before I've had my coffee. And we begin to take the good gifts of this partner for granted. 
I once heard that a spouse or a partner or even a very close dear friend is like a blue plate special. On a blue plate special, there are no substitutes. When you get those floppy little canned string beans alongside the mouth-watering meatloaf, don't even think that your waiter will agree to substitute red jello. You can whine to your server, but all that's happening is that your meatloaf's getting cold. The bottom line is that you can't change the blue plate special, and you can't change your partner. And so to you, my friends, I say, don't eat up what precious time you have together focusing on all of your loved one's many imperfections, because we get what we pay attention to. If you truly want your partner to change, cheer wildly what you like and ignore what you don't. Research shows that happily married or committed people have the same stresses, the same upsets, life traumas, the same pet peeves, the same not-so-perfect childhoods as those who are living miserable lives together. Happy couples get angry. They disappoint one another. They get depressed. In other words, our lives all have the same raw ingredients to work with. For happy couples, the difference is that they have a vision of their future that pictures happiness, fulfillment, contentment, and joy, and they believe that together they can achieve it. They share an unswerving commitment to keep that vision out in front of them. As someone once said to me, you can't drive through your relationships with the brakes on. We don't figure it all out ahead of time. We throw out commitment out ahead of us and then dive afterward into the how-tos. If we run out of ideas, we make them up. We hold out a vision of a loving life. We do what we must do to create that every single day. I would want to know, I, wanna, I would want Ari and Chris to know about the work of psychologist John Gottman. Have any of you heard of him? He's like the guru, the, um, the foremost authority on the psychology of relationships in this country. Maybe you've heard about his research. It's just really fascinating. For 30 years, he has been studying what makes committed relationships thrive. And what he learned is this. He learned that he could predict with 90% accuracy, that's unheard of in psychological research, what was going to happen in a couple's relationship over a three-year period just by examining their behavior during a conflict discussion. By watching thousands and thousands of hours of tapes, he and his assistants noticed a pattern. What he noticed is that how people interact in a discussion about a conflict they are having, their language, their subterranean hostile remarks, their barely concealed disdain, their body language, was almost identical to how they interacted around a conflict issue four years later. And that in 70% of the cases, those couples were still talking about the same issues. <laughs> issues it appeared that they would be talking about forever. Their love had become gridlocked. 
Now, the researchers tried to do what they could to give these couples helpful suggestions, but that didn't seem to make much of a difference with them. What they found work, worked was really far more simple. The secret was this. By having each person share their dreams about this, about this relationship and share why what they were fighting for was so important to them, they found that 86% of the time, those couples moved from gridlock to dialogue. Oh, and one more thing. It turns out that relationships are built on emotional bids that we make to one another, emotional bids to get attention and to get our needs met. I make a funny comment, and Jean laughs. Gene is sad, and I console him. We respond either by turning toward those bids or by turning away and ignoring those bids for connection. Or we send fuzzy bids, expecting that our partner will read our mind. Or we frame those bids in negative terms. And sadly, we get so used to one another, we don't even notice the bids after a time, or we misread them. Paying attention to our unintentionally poor communication or the ways that we push each other away is a huge step to restoring your love and getting things back on track. It's why our classes in relationship building and nonviolent communication are so important. They teach us those kinds of skills. Now, Chris and Ari have been together long enough to know that in the beginning, love may fly, run, and leap for joy. But after a while, things get a little bit more mundane. In the, in the midst of paying our bills, raising our children, and deciding who takes out the trash. A friend of mine who has been married several times is convinced each time that he's finally found the one and indeed, for a while, they settle into the beginnings of a deep relationship, one that is not only very loving, but quiet and comfortable as well, with the natural flow of tides and ebbs. Now, that roller coaster ride of passion they had been riding for so long isn't with them any longer. They discover. And so this guy says, that seem, things seem to be a little too comfortable. Shouldn't there be more excitement? Wasn't love about passion, about wildness and angst? And so thinking that this ordinariness represents a lack of love, the relationship ends and he falls in love with someone new again, this time, of course, for good. I would tell Ari and Chris that no matter how loving, how compassionate and understanding they are toward each other, they will at some times hurt each other. They will say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, and even in difficult times, willfully say and do the wrong thing. And in the course of a long, loving marriage, they will probably do it a thousand times in acts large and small. We sustain our love by being honest about who we are and what we need. Being able to ask each other for what we need and what we want 
saying clearly what hurts us and what we will not stand for, and that is the work of love. Along with that goes not holding grudges or being held captive by them, not keeping score on hurts, being able to forgive. I, for one, would like to know the guy who said, love is never having to say you're sorry. I imagine that his closest relationship must have been with his barca lounger. The writer Ellen Berg reflected upon her parents' 50-year marriage and observed true love is not about storybook romance. It is about the sacrificial process of recognizing and accepting the unique individual you are with. It's ethical culture. Love is not always fair. It is not always equal. We each summon the love that we can. It will come from the harvest of our earliest experiences and also what we've picked up along the way. And often the summoning and the receiving will make us vulnerable to great pain. One of the great learnings we must have is how to let in love when it is given to us. Even when true love lasts, someone dies first and leaves the painful work of grieving. Love can break your heart, but only because it gives your heart something worth breaking for. I might offer to them a reading by the writer George Nathan who said that the couples who can laugh at their love, who can embrace with chuckles, will outlast in mutual affection all those throat-lumpy, cow-eyed couples. Nothing lives on as fresh and green as the love with a funny bone. But no matter what, whenever two people decide to make a lifelong commitment, we should know what a risk that is. To stand there with pockets full of love and luck and hope and nothing else. No guarantees, no map, no crystal ball. And the world around them ambivalent at best these days about the wisdom of the whole adventure. They will be called upon to make a pledge to one another for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish for always, even when we're tired, even when we're cranky, even when we're insecure, even when we're sick. And that's why it's important to renew one's vows from time to time. Each October on our wedding anniversary, Jean and the girls and I have a ritual of going to a beautiful place, a beautiful setting, and renewing our vows. The girls read our wedding ceremony. They take the part of the officiant. And we commit to our vows again and again, and then talk about what those vows mean to us. It's a ritual we love and one that they love. As I said earlier, for the next five weeks, our children will be unpacking what love is in the Sunday school. They will consider, consider what it means that there is only one important time, and that is now. And that the most important one is the one you are with. And the most important thing to do is to do good for the one you are with. For these as the story goes, are the answers to what is most important in the world. The youth 
in the Washington Ethical Society and in other congregations like UU congregations with similar principles, they are growing up and seeing around them gay and lesbian and heterosexual people who have committed themselves to each other for the long haul. They will have countless opportunities to be with couples in addition to their parents. They will see those who have chosen loving ways to live with each other, who challenge and support each other to be their best selves. They will see the ways that people carve out time for their friends, but also those in the community that they barely know. Because love, if it's real, is always wider than the usual small circles of concern. They will know that to live in integrity, love is also about, or surely ought to be about, our political lives as well. Partly why I think we are all so revved up about President Obama is that he seems to understand that politics at its best ought to be about concern for the well-being of every person in our homes, in our communities, and in the world. The Reverend Rebecca Parker writes that love is not just solve for the wounds after a disaster like Katrina, a gesture of kindly help when the situation has come become horrendously dire. Rather, she affirms, we must bring first, love first, to our political and economic decisions as to how and to whom we will allocate resources, care for the environment, and so on. Katrina was not just a disaster as she sees it. It was a failure to put love first in our decision-making which means a failure to put justice and truth first, those political companion virtues of love. If we have any sense at all, we love with an outpouring of thanks for each passing day and a growing humility that while we matter, it's not all about us. It's about what passes through us, what lends meaning to our days, and what transcends us through the legacy of love and caring. What are we, any of us, but strangers drawing together and to find, hoping to find the meaning in our lives, hoping to find that reflected back to us from others, dissolving our fears in each other's courage, dancing and making music together and lighting torches through the dark night. To love, to commit to love, to commit to life with one another is to surrender, to make willing sacrifice of our small life for a greater life whose dimensions we will come to only know in time, only in doing, only in living, in being, as Wendell Berry put it, faithful to the good in each other. On Tuesday, January 20th, the poet Elizabeth Alexander delivered the inaugural poem. I know there were many of you in this room who heard it. It was neither flashy nor filled with pretense nor the usual pomp and circumstance that surrounds that day. Instead, she chose a prose poem that emphasized the daily and mundane affairs of our lives. She said, each day we go about our business, and all about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, and the poem goes on to describe how people go about their business and contend with that bramble. 
They build and repair, study and learn, love and sacrifice. And so it has always been. And she spoke about the power of a single four-letter word. What if, she said, the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. For Ari and for Chris and for all of you, and with love and with hope, I conclude with the final four lines of Alexander's poem. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, anything can be made, any sentence begun. On the brink, on the brim, on the cusp, praise song for walking forward in that light. <laughs>